Greetings, church and friends of the church. It is second week in November 2020, which means that we are now eight months into this pandemic season of wilderness, uh, with the wilderness being this metaphorical way to describe where we are now. Um, disconnected from what we used to know as normal, we're not still there, and not yet to a new normal, um, where we have a new sense of settledness or comfort um, and normalcy. <laughs> so we're still in the in-between. And when we're in this in-between place, we're not monopolized by going through the motions, uh, running the race of the normal day-to-day -day stuff. And so we can have our eyes open and our minds open to a, a new imagination for how life could be together, uh, to, to imagine a future that's better. In this series, uh, uh, we've reflected on um, posture that we can take in order to capitalize on this um, opportunity that we never asked for, uh, assumptions that we can make about ourselves, the natural tendencies and temptations that physiologically evolved within all of us that play such tricks on us, and the, the isms that plague us as a people, uh, our collective sicknesses that are the embodiments of these self-serving tendencies and temptations that, that break down peaceful society. And we've reflected on the need for a spirituality that counteracts these physical forces, that's, that's a different voice telling us who we can be other than who these um, voices of our physical fears and tendencies tell us where we have to be. Um, we shifted it today in this series away from the reflection on diagnosing our collective sickness and toward the consideration of different spiritual practices that can nurture that spiritual voice within all, any of us, all of us. The voice that helps us to move beyond these isms caused by all of us listening only to the voices of our physicality. As we begin this part of this series, I wanna be clear that I'm not conflating spirituality with religion. They can overlap in, in really meaningful ways, but they don't always, and they are certainly not wholly one and the same. Some of us connect with a larger spiritual view of the world through institutional or organized religion and its practices, its patterns, its traditions, and, and increasing numbers of us don't. Some of us are comfortable with organized religion. Some of us are uncomfortable or uncertain because we've just not ever been a part of any sort of religious community. And some of us have been harmed physically, emotionally, spiritually by someone within the organized religion world and stay far away from it because of that. And so we may not all ever be in the same place religiously, but we can nurture a common spirituality. And my argument in this whole series is that we must, as a people, for our own sake. And so I hope that these reflections help us all to implement spiritual practices, whether they are within the context of religious habit or not. So the first uh, spiritual practice, the foundational spiritual practice, that helps us to have that voice speaking within us a different word about who we are than what our fearful physical tendencies tell us is the practice of prayer. 
Now, we don't have a good common definition of what prayer is. And so we are all left to define what it is based on our own particular experiences and traditions. For many people, prayer is something that religious people do. Obligatory practices like the Rosary, the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Lord's Prayer, saying grace at mealtime, or prayers of confession, intercession, illumination in the context of obligatory worship services. For many, prayer is understood as Billy Graham described it, simply a two-way conversation between you and God. And time is set aside in the morning at bedtime or whenever for religious people to chat with God in this way. Or some of these chats are a time of asking or begging God for something with the expectation that God is like a genie whose job it is to make our wishes come true. Or with the expectation that God is some sort of universal puppet master with the ability to pull all the strings of time and space in order to create a favorable outcome for us or a loved one if we ask for it, if we somehow earn that favor or reward by our words or our behavior. But if what we ask or beg for goes unfulfilled, then we're left with disappointment in the sense that either God didn't hear or didn't care or that we must not have earned it. For some, that's our understanding of what prayer is. For others, prayer is a a less or a non-religious practice, more about the, the disconnection and silence of meditation, the intentional effort to not think about anything, rather than an intentional effort to think and reflect in a particular direction or, or to ask for something in particular related to you know, our circumstances or the circumstances of someone else. I, I've known several friends who are more in this meditative place of prayer and say things like, you know, a long hike through a beautiful place is my time of prayer. And so this takes us back to the reality that we don't have a good common definition of what prayer really is. Is it a particular set of prescripted words written by somebody else that one has to say as part of a religious life? Is it an unscripted conversation with God? Is it a request for divine intervention or favor or forgiveness that may or may not be answered? Is it a time of meditation? Is it a time of disconnection from stressors? Is it a time of connection to the natural world? Now, in my own spiritual journey, I have turned to the ways of Jesus, uh, which, again, I know is and acknowledge is not always the way of the religion that has been formed in his name. To explore the spiritual teaching of Jesus is not always aligned with the teachings and the practices of dogmatic Christianity. In fact, is often diametrically opposed in ways that leave people on the outside of the church scratching their heads because of the dissonance. I believe that what Jesus taught about prayer is so much bigger than a particular religious habit and prescripted incantations for people to say together. And I believe that his teachings about prayer are not opposed to or exclusive of what other spiritual traditions teach about prayer. Arguably, his most... um, important teaching about prayer and how it ought to shape those who do it is when he says in response to his earliest followers, well, teach us, you know, 
Teach us your way of praying. Teach us how to pray. And his response begins with, well, whenever you pray. Um, and this, it's important to not speed past this, that prayer is something that can happen and does happen whenever. He doesn't specify when or where people are supposed to pray, as if it is uh, something that can only take place when at you know, a religious building, uh, a synagogue, or the temple in Jerusalem for him and his followers, or a place like this for me or us. Nor does it have to be something that happens only around a table before meals or, or on your knees at your bedside before you go to sleep. It's, it's just whenever, whenever you pray. And the word um, that, that he uses that, that comes to us in the Greek language, the original text for prayer or, or the verb to pray is prosyukomai, which is this compound word made from pros, which means to or toward or exchanging with. And yukomai, which means wishes or longings or desires. This is getting a bit technical, but this is really critical to build an understanding of what we're actually talking about when we're talking about praying. This word paints the picture of two, two characters facing each other, and they're giving their wishes and their desires and their longings to one another. They're exchanging them. If the word were pros cookie, it would mean <laughs> exchanging cookies. So we're invited to imagine turning our focus away from ourselves and what our physical self-defense mechanisms are telling us our desires and longings and wishes ought to be, and away from other human voices and what they tell us our desires ought to be, and instead to, to, to open our face to the mysterious creator of the world and to hand off our wishes, longings, desires, and in return, to accept the wishes, longings, and desires that come to us from God. The point of prayer is that exchange that takes place, and not the words that narrate it, and not the time or the place. Jesus cautioned against a couple ways uh, that we ought not pray. He taught that when people pray, they ought not be like hypocrites who stand in the synagogue or on the street corner so that they may be seen. And to, to Jesus, a hypocrite were those people who manufactured for themselves this persona, this air of religiosity and righteousness in order to either try to win favor with God or to try to win praise and recognition from other people. They are those who put on a show for either God or others as an audience. And, and Jesus thought, that's, that's not praying if you're doing it for yourself that way. He also taught when praying that we ought not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. The Gentiles being the, the non-Jewish people of his time who are not speaking up uh, in self-centered ways at the synagogue, but in other public places hoping to be heard. And the Greek word for heaping up empty phrases means uh, more literally to be long-winded with nonsensical repetition. <laughs> and the word for being heard is not, it's not just about your voice being audibly hearable, but about someone hearing you so deeply such that their, their hearing of your words leads them to comply with and obey what you're saying. There's this sense that if an authority says something enough times and with enough conviction— 
that by that repetition, people start to believe it and go along with it, even, even if it's nonsensical, even if it's not true. Because it can shape people's desires if they're willing to exchange them. But when, when people trade their desires with you know, some human voice, some human leader, rather than for divine desires, it becomes this maligned prayerfulness that tricks people into thinking they're adopting divine desires when they're really not. Religious leaders have used this trick for centuries, which is why the church so often gets into these places where it seems to be in direct conflict with Jesus. But so have political leaders, as they've co-opted the name of God in ways that capitalize on our malign prayerfulness for their own benefit. So Jesus cautions, we ought not be a part of this kind of prayer. It's about um, words being spoken publicly in repetition so that they're heard, obeyed, and imitated by others to change the understandings and the practices of others so that they're like us. The point of prayer is the exchange that takes place as we release our own desires, so often birthed out of these physical tendencies to self-protect by fighting and assuming negatively about others and tribalizing with those who are like us against those who are different from us. And we accept instead a different story about what we are to desire instead. Jesus taught that when we pray, it's, it's not out in these places of prominence where we're, we're trying to get a response from somebody else. But he taught, go into your room and shut the door and pray to God who is in secret. And God who sees in secret will reward you. When we hear this word secret, we're tempted to think he's saying that, we're, that prayer ought to be this very private individual practice. And that's, that's really not exactly what he's saying. Uh, the word secret in Greek is, is more about internal and external rather than alone or together. The prayer is an internal act, an act of heart and spirit, rather than an external act for the sake of our appearance. It's an act of our heart and spirit, whether we are alone or whether we are with others whether we're praying in solitude at the beginning or end of our day, or we're praying in the quiet of our own hearts in the midst of the mundane, at school, work, or some other public place, um, where we're trying to decide in that moment what is our will and, and what, is, what is a divine will, or we're, we're, we're seeking to exchange our will for God's divine will as we're in a conversation with someone else about what we ought to do, or praying together as a community of faith, multiple people um, with more ritualistic uh, prayers. We have to make sure that these prayers are not an external act for the sake of acceptance or fitting in or rec recognition. We have to make sure they're about our heart being reshaped by different desires. And so for, for me and for Blair, my wife, you know, our most transformative times of prayer, if I'm completely honest, don't take place in places like this. Meaningful prayer does happen in pews and chairs for us, but the pews and the chairs and the walls around them aren't the point. The most transformative times of prayer for us over the last 10 years have been conversations over dinner where there are no kids with us. <laughs> when we finally have the time and the space to focus on life decisions and to think carefully about what 
would be God's will and direction for our lives rather than our own desires for our life that we share. When Jesus taught his followers to pray, he gave them words, but they weren't just words to say with obedience and then move on with your day, giving them no further thought as if you, you know, check the box of what prayer means. They are words that are meant to shape our spirit in every moment, whether we are saying them out loud or not. They're words that are meant to shape our way of being and our way of living. And the prayer that he gave us, the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer, it's known in different ways in different traditions, starts with an affirmation that it is, it's God's will for our lives that we seek and not our own. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. I am here to exchange uh, my will for yours. True prayer begins the moment that we defer to God over self as the authority in our lives. Trusting God to work through the circumstances of our lives to provide for our daily bread and our daily needs. Trusting in God's will and guidance to lead to a better, a better, more meaningful, more fruitful life than any version of life that we could try to manufacture for ourselves. And that deference and trust is what leads to the prayer exchange. And we make this exchange because it enables us to be the people through whom God acts, such that God's will is accomplished on earth as it is in heaven, for our sake and for the sake of others. We let go of our desires for our relationships with family, friends, stranger, and enemy. We let go of our desires for our vocations, our money, our time, our whatever. Desires that are so often shaped by fearful physical tendencies. And in this prayer that he gave us, we acknowledge that God can lead us away from this temptation of choosing the self. But God cannot force us to make that choice. Lead us not into temptation. We acknowledge that divine guidance can lead us away from evil, away from that which is lacking or opposed to God's good will of peace. But we are not forced to follow a voice of peace instead of the voices of our own temptations. To avoid the temptation of participating in selfish or ungodly actions and attitudes that, that are destructive or destroy peace. We have to make the choice to exchange our desires for God's in this act of prayer. When we are truly praying, we are led away from the temptation to choose the will of the self. We change. When the story that we believe about who we are changes, we change. As Kierkegaard wrote, prayer does not change God but changes the one who prays. We don't pray to change God's minds or actions, but to change ourselves. And a few things happen in this change. First, we become more grateful and content because of our deepening awareness of the daily bread, the ways that the rhythms of God in this world have provided for all people to have a meaningful life and the life that we live. And the more we pray for God's will and not our own, the more we realize that we are connected to, as a people, all that we need. And we're grateful for that instead of being envious and disappointed because of 
what we don't have, even though we don't need it. Second, we become people whose lives become vehicles for the divine will being accomplished. The more we pray for God's desires and God's will of peace and justice and common good to take the place of our own self-serving desires, the more our lives participate in the work of God to nurture peaceful community on earth. The kind of community that Jesus called the kingdom on earth. Our motivation for making decisions becomes less inspired by our physical fears for the sake of the self and inspired more by a desire to participate in that bigger purpose in life. A bigger purpose than ensuring just my own personal wealth or power or comfort or safety. Our sense of purpose changes. And if our sense of purpose changes, then our decisions and our words and our actions change. And third, we become a forgiving people who nurture reconciliation and unity rather than judgment, grudge, segregation, fracture, oppression, polarity. The more we pray for the desire to forgive others as God forgives first, that desire to unconditionally seek the well-being of the other rather than to conditionally reward or punish, the more our lives contribute to the mending of relationships and the strengthening of community. As Mother Teresa said, I used to believe that prayer changes things, and now I know that prayer changes us and we change things. And this is where we have to acknowledge that Jesus' teaching of prayer is aligned with, and certainly not exclusive of, the teachings of other spiritual traditions. Gandhi wrote that prayer is not asking, but a longing of the soul. The man of prayer will be at peace with himself and the whole world. The prophet Muhammad wrote that one hour's meditation on the work of the Creator is better than 70 years of prayer. And that making peace between two people is more precious than fasting and prayer. By prayer, referring to religious rites. The Dalai Lama wrote that it is necessary to help others, not only in our prayers, but in our daily lives. Peace does not come through prayer. We human beings must create peace. Prayer changes us. As we silence these physical voices that tell us to fight, to assume the negative, to tribalize against those who are different, as we trade those for the voice of the divine, the voice that calls all things into peace with one another, the voice that tells us that we are a people who forgive, reconcile, love, and serve one another. And then we change things in the direction of more peace. The result of prayer is that we naturally nurture lives of gratitude, common good, forgiveness, and peace. And so if our prayers aren't changing us so that our lives are no longer about our fears and desires for the self, but are instead about participating in the creation of more peace between individuals, nations, religions, and races, then we are not actually praying. We may be doing something religious, or we may be doing something habitual, But if we're still living by our own desires and not God's, then we're not praying. If we've allowed other human voices, religious political or political leaders, to distort our views of what is godly, good, and right by their repetition, and we've adopted a sense of the divine will for the world that is in any way exclusive, judgmental, oppressive, violent, or polarized, 
if it, if it triggers our, our bodies to tell us to fight, assume or tribalize against other people, then it's time to go into our closet away from those voices and to listen for the voice calling for peace from the deep within. I find this voice in the Judeo-Christian tradition, which for millennia has taught that the divine creator's will for the world is peace. That the role of the individual is not to appease a divine anger, but to willfully participate in the peaceful ordering of the nations by lives of service, hospitality, forgiveness, and love. And that the will of God is therefore always and eternally what is loving unto the neighbor of every nation, race, and creed. With the practice of prayer, I have learned to exchange imperfectly to the best of my ability the desires that bubble up within me from these physical tendencies to serve myself for the desire to live in ways that are loving and make for peace. In small ways, in the context of relationships I'm in, I'm in the midst of every day, and in large ways for the sake of a larger common good of all people and the world upon which we all live. Now, I use the teachings of Jesus as a reliable reference for what is good and loving and what makes for peace. I use the teachings of Jesus as a reliable reference for what is truly the divine will, the divine desire for which I may exchange my own. This exchange in prayer is the first and foundational step in moving beyond the isms that plague us as we are slaves to our physicality. It is what begins to change us, this exchange, so that we can then change the world to be better and more just and more peaceful. And so what or who might be your reference for what is good and what is the divine will? Whether religious or not, how might you develop this practice of exchanging your physical, fearful desires to fight, to assume negatively, to tribalize, or more divine desires of love and peace among people? What might this look like for you? Not to be a religious person, but to be a person of prayer. I'm happy to talk with anybody about what that might look like for you. So please feel free to reach out. For we must pray. All people. And we must change. Stay home. Stay safe. Wear your mask for the love of God. Be well. And peace be to all.